You know, there is a certain sense where we take personal responsibility for fumbling the ball. But the Lord always gives us an opportunity to recover, to repent, to be restored, and to be recommissioned. Thanks for tuning in to the Putnam City Baptist Church podcast. Our 2019 theme is making disciples as we help our community know God, become family, and impact the world. We hope this message encourages you wherever you might be. If you'd like to learn more about PCBC, visit us online at pcbc.tv. I I just uh, am so excited to be here because I have known uh, your church for some years. I pastored beginning in uh, 1976 in Oklahoma, had a wonderful time in Mangum and Enid Emanuel, where we met uh, the Hulses. We had some very special friends from both ministries who came to the early service and uh, are possibly in here. I can't quite see with the lights, but I have known of this wonderful church for many, many years. And I thank God that he who began a good work in you is continuing to perform it. And it's just so exciting to see how God has brought, I think, one of our choicest pastors, Pastor Bill Hulse, and his wonderful wife, Cammie, to you. You are really, really blessed. And uh, I I hope you realize that. I'm sure you do. But uh, they are incredible servants of the Lord. And I'm so grateful to be with you. Now, tonight at 4 o'clock, that time of teaching on discipleship is, uh, I think, one of of my favorite subjects. And as we talk about not only what it looks like and what the Scripture says, but a number of very practical steps, how do you really uh, disciple someone? What, what does it look like to be a disciple? And too many people think it's uh, going through a workbook or uh, memorizing so many scriptures or knowing so many Bible verses, but discipleship is a breathing, living, dynamic relationship with Jesus Christ. And that's what we want to talk about, particularly though in the beginning of this conference this morning. And I want you to take your Bible and turn please to John Chapter 21, John 21, verses 1 and following. We'll not try to read the entire chapter at one time. Uh, I know some of you, anybody here OU fans? Uh, Any Texas fans here? God bless you. Oh, man, you are loved. I I spent many years uh, watching that rivalry, but uh, the worst defeat in college football history occurred in 1916. Little Cumberland College played Georgia Tech. They were a much smaller team, and they were so mauled, they never made a first down. And they lost the game to Tech 222 to nothing. The clock was not their friend. And one of those small players, a running back, at one point fumbled the ball, and he saw one of his teammates closer to it as it popped out of his arms, and he yelled, pick it up! And the other guy who was so in shock said, you pick it up, you dropped it. Well, you know, there is a certain sense where we take personal responsibility for fumbling the ball. But the Lord always gives us an opportunity to recover, to repent, to be restored, and to be recommissioned.
And that's exactly what the Lord did with Simon Peter. He was the captain of the team. And Jesus had predicted that before the rooster crowed during his trials, Peter would deny Christ three times before daybreak. And sure enough, he wasn't tackled by a big linebacker, but outed as a follower of Jesus by a little girl. And Simon Peter, with curses, denied even knowing Christ. And at that moment, as Jesus was being taken from one kangaroo court to the other, their eyes locked on, and suddenly the conviction of the Holy Spirit hit Peter. And he went out into the night and sorrowed to repentance, scalding tears running down his cheeks. But he wondered if not only be, be benched by Jesus, but be cut from the team. And so when Christ was raised from the dead, the angel said to the disciples, Go and tell the disciples and Peter that he will meet you in Galilee. And it was as if all heaven wanted them to know that one failure is not fatal. And when the angel said, and Peter, he was saying, even Peter can be forgiven. And even you and me, you and I can know that wonderful grace of the Lord. So would you stand and honor the word as we talk about how to get off the bench and into the game, and let's stand in honor of the inspired, inerrant Scripture of God. And I'll begin reading in verse 1, John 21. After these things, Jesus manifested or revealed himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias, and he manifested himself in this way. Now look, look at verse 3. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we also will come with you. They went out and got into the boat, and that night they caught nothing. But when the day was now breaking, Jesus stood on the beach. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. So Jesus said to them, children, you do not have any fish, do you? And they answered, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find a catch. So they cast, and then they were not able to haul it in because of the great number of fish. Therefore, that disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. So when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. But the other disciples came in the little boat, for they were not far from the land, but about 100 yards away, dragging the net full of fish. So when they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire already laid and fish placed on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish which you have now caught. Simon Peter went up and drew the net to land full of large fish, 153. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. You may be seated. Simon Peter was always saying the wrong thing at the wrong time. His motto was, open mouth, insert sandal. And when you read about him, he was mentioned first in the list of the apostles. Judas always last. But he always had this tendency to sort of elbow his way to the front of the line. And occasionally he would say some of the most profound things. But Jesus put his finger on the nerve that exposed Peter's vulnerability. And when Jesus appeared to them, 
manifesting himself, being raised from the dead, we see one of the most amazing restoration recoveries in all of the Scripture. I need this. You need this. A fresh word from the Lord himself when he says, I want you in the game and not on the bench. Now, some of us think that once, if we've blown it, there is no more grace. We think that somehow with Jesus, there's piling on, stiff-arming, wagging fingers, crossed arms, black eyes, bruised lips, that somehow Jesus is done with us. He's finished. He, he said, you've, you've blown it too many times. But Jesus calls us to fresh love. He didn't say, Peter, are you really sorry? I mean, do you really mean it this time? Will you cross your heart and hope to die, swear to never do it again, write it in blood and sign a notarized statement? No. Here's the first thing that he did. When Jesus says, I want you off the bench and into the game, as an active, fruitful disciple, here's the first thing he says, remember me. And we see that in these first few verses, he's been raised from the dead. He's alive. He is going to meet them in a unique way. And so who Jesus is, is exactly who he was. And he still is. When, they, when Jesus stood on the, the beach, they had been out trying to fish all night long. It was, you know, Peter sort of, I'd rather be fishing, you know, that he'd have that bumper sticker on his pickup. And uh, this was the easiest thing to do after his failure to revert to what he knew, which was fishing. And even some of the landlubber apostles went out with him all night long, and they caught nothing. But suddenly, early in the morning, this person on the shore says, you don't have any fish, do you? I mean, it's pretty obvious. They, they, their nets were totally empty. Cast the net on the right side, they did, and they caught 153 fish. And suddenly, John, who always described himself in the gospel as the disciple whom Jesus loved, said, it is the Lord. And they realized, Jesus is not was, but is. He is the great I am. I am the resurrection and the life, Jesus said. And he was the one who did that miracle. Who Jesus was is who he is still. Jacob said at Bethel, after he had this vision of angels on a ladder ascending and descending to heaven, the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. I want to tell you, he is at work right here and now. And one of the most powerful things you and I claim is when Jesus said, I am always at work. My Father's working, and I am working. But not only who he was is who he is. But how he's working is alongside of where he is working. And where Jesus is working, of course, is in his divine plan. But he gives us these wonderful invitations to join him. He already had a fire prepared. By the way, the same word, charcoal, fire, was the same word for the fire of which Peter warned himself when he denied Christ in the courtyard of the governor. And 
Jesus says, come and dine, come have breakfast. And the word bread is the same word used when he uh, multiplied the bread and the fishes. And Jesus had said earlier at the beginning when he called them, come and see. Where are you staying? Come and see. He said, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. Come and drink. And now he says, come, eat. Because Jesus is always giving an invitation. It may not be to come forward. It may be to, uh, to get down on your knees. It may be to have breakfast with him. It, it may be to be involved in discipling others. But there is always an invitation that we must respond to in faith and obedience. Willing to do the last thing Jesus said and the next thing. Come and dine. But also, where Jesus is is where I want to be. And that's why Peter jumped out of the boat. He put on his outer garment. He had girded himself for fishing, and now he dresses up. What's the deal? You would think, you know, you strip down to your bathing suit or something and then swim to shore. But the Jews saw greeting as a sacred responsibility. He was putting on his Savior go to meet and clothes. And so he swam to Jesus, and then he helped uh, bring that net of fish in. But also, let me, this is so significant. What Jesus did before, he can do again. With Jesus, the net is full of fish. It's the same miracle he had done at the beginning of his ministry. And Peter had cried out, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. And now he wants to come to Jesus as a forgiven sinner. Come and what Jesus did before is always exceedingly abundant above all we could ask or think. Wouldn't it be a great thing if you could say, Lord, I want you to just stretch my prayers and expand my thinking. I want you to so push me in the envelope of my life that I will watch you do what only you can do and can only be explained by your sovereign divine work. Exceeding abundant. More wine at the wedding than they could even imagine. The fish in the nets. The, the bread and the fish is multiplied for the thousands. Jesus wants to do something extraordinary in this church. But at the same time, I want to say this. What Jesus did before, he may not do again. And that's hard to accept, isn't it? I, I want him to go back to the good old days. I can remember some great old days, can't you? And we see him doing something. But do you realize never again did he give a miraculous catch of fish like this and in, in Luke 5. But he did something better. He thrust them into a world mission. He said, go and make disciples of all the nations. And now, from now on, you will be catching men, Jesus said. They would be seeing people come to Christ. That was actually a, a favorite expression of Greek and Roman teachers, catching men, catching them alive. You know, fishing today catches something that's living and brings it into death. In evangelism, missions, and discipleship, we catch those who are dead and see them come into life. But here's the second thing Jesus does. 
And this is so important. When he calls us to get off the bench and into the game, he says, love me. Look at verses 15 to 17 again in John 21. So when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? More than these disciples? You said you did. You said, though all others leave you, that you would hang in there with me. He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my lambs. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, shepherd my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. It's love for Jesus that really matters. And as Jesus is manifesting or revealing himself to them again in these post-resurrection appearances, he asked three questions of Peter. Peter denied Jesus three times. And now he probes and challenges, but he also commissions him three times. Do you love me? And he uses the word agape, I, that abandoned sacrificial love of John 3.16. The love that calls Christ to go to the cross for you and me. And Peter used a different word, phileo. Friendship, affectionate love. Now I know that there are a few instances when it says God the Father loves us and He wants to have an affectionate, intimate relationship with us. It says in, in John that Jesus loved Lazarus, not only loving him as one for whom he would die and then raise from the dead, but he loved him as a friend. He had a deep affection for him. And all of that is good. But it's very significant that Jesus said, do you love me? But Peter could only say, hey, I like you a lot. Hey, we got a cool bromance going here. Hey, you're, a, you're my best bud. I, I really like hanging out with you. Jesus, man, hey, you and me, you and me. Do you love me, Peter? Jesus has said the two greatest commandments are love God with all your being, love your neighbor as yourself. And so he not only said, do you love me, but then he said, all right, here's how you love your neighbor as yourself. Tend my sheep. And Peter was grieved. Three times he's being asked this, do you love me? How much did Jesus love him and us? In Ephesians, listen to this in chapter 3. You see, true love, not true romance, but true love of, of Christ bestows understanding. It always begins with understanding. To, to whatever degree God reveals to us the magnitude of his love. In Ephesians 3, Paul prayed that they might comprehend, verse 18, with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. You can't be filled with the Spirit till you understand the love of God. You see, 
here's what, how great that love is. You can't go around his love. He wants you to know the breadth of his love. And we see his fingerprints in creation, his footprints in history. But when we see his nail prints from the cross and those arms stretch wide to embrace all, the Bible says Christ died for all, not just the elect, <laughs> not just certain ones. The Scripture says it again and again, for all, even the lost people, the bad people, and the people who don't know they're, they're lost and bad. It's like the little boy prayed one time, God, make all the bad people good and make all the good people nice. We've seen some people who are just a little too legalistic, haven't we? But then he wants us to know the length of his love. You can't go beyond it. He's loved us with an everlasting love. That word literally means out of sight. You can't even see how far his love goes. He wants us to realize that there is the height in love. You can't get over his love. You, you can't ever climb over it. You can't surpass it in any way. And then to know the depth of his love, you can't run out of it. He's able to save. And that's why John was so gripped with the fact that he was the disciple whom Jesus loved. Do you see yourself like that? Do you love Jesus? I know a gentleman who is an educator, former president of, co of colleges, went to Dallas Theological Seminary. And he had a unique opportunity one time to pick up in his car the very famous theologian Carl F.H. Henry, one of the most profound theologians of the last century. In, in the car was my friend's little, little girl, uh, an eight-year-old. And, and as soon as Dr. Henry got in the car, she looked at him and leaned over the front seat and said, Mr. Carl, do you love Jesus? <laughs> it wasn't Dr. Henry. It wasn't, would you explain, please, justification by faith, predestination and glorification. Do you love Jesus? Because really that's what matters that's all that really matters. And discipleship is growing in your love relationship with Christ. True love also breaks pride. It begins with understanding. And Jesus presses on that raw nerve three times because of three denials. He says, Simon, son of John, pressing on the fact he has a genealogy uh, and an inheritance a DNA of lostness all the way back to Adam and even through his own father. He's reminding him of his sinful humanity. Do you love me? He's breaking his pride. I heard about a young cocky preacher fresh out of seminary, and one Sunday he was leaving uh, the little church he pastored, and he turned to his wife and he said, I wonder how many truly great preachers there are in the world today. And very wisely, she answered, one less than you think. <laughs> you know, you get pretty, pretty high on yourself, and you think everybody else will fail. Peter had that swag, didn't he? He could strut sitting down. Hey, I, you know, everybody else is going to flake out. Not me, Jesus. 
There are those who say, oh, if I know my heart. No, you, don't, you know nothing about the depths of your potential for sin. You have no idea until you're tested what your faith will be like. But every one of us dies to pride and goes all the way back and says, Lord, without your grace and power, I cannot truly follow and love you. True love also blesses others. Jesus said, tend my sheep, or literally, tend my lambs, my little ones. That's the wonder of children's ministry. That's the importance of student ministry. That's the urgency of ministering in the public schools and in the Christian schools. Tend my lambs. Then Jesus said, shepherd my sheep. And finally, feed my sheep. Using the same word as tend. Tend his lambs is the idea of feeding them, nourishing them in the pasture of disciple making. And the next word, shepherding the sheep, is a different word in the original language, and it it has the idea of guiding the sheep, of governing in a sense, of leading them to the right pasture, bringing back the straying ones, of leadership. We are leading and feeding the sheep. We're called to a, a balance biblically of evangelism, which is being fishers of men, and discipleship, which cannot be divorced from evangelism and missions, which is shepherding the sheep, all of the sheep. And the problem for so many of us is the pendulum will swing this way or this way. But Jesus said, if you love me, Peter, I'm not sending you on a long-term retreat up at Mount Hermon. I want you to get back in the game. I'm not sending you to the locker room to get retaped or get shot up with some cortisone. I'm I'm sending you back, even though you feel wounded and broken and failing, I am putting you back into action. Because love is a verb more than a noun. Now, it's not that we minister a disciple because we love sheep so much. You know, sheep, what what a figure for the picture of a Christian. They're stupid. They're straying. All we like sheep have gone astray. They're uh, absolutely uh, stupid looking, silly, and stinky. I've, I've spent a week on a sheep ranch. And so they're defenseless. You never see some sheep holding up his hooves and saying, these hooves are registered with the police. I'm bad to the bone. I love the T-shirt I saw one time. It showed a little, a little sheep. He's going through a valley, and he's one, one hoof. He's holding the hand of Jesus, the great shepherd. And on this side uh, on a hill is a wolf, and this side is a lion, and they're ready to pounce on him. And the little sheep simply says, I'm with him. With Jesus called the good shepherd, the great shepherd, the chief shepherd. Yet we are his under-shepherds, and Jesus is saying to us, not just to Simon Peter, but you shepherd my sheep, you tend my lambs. It blesses others. Evangelism and discipleship. But also true love believes in potential. Jesus finally uses Peter's word, Third question, Peter, do you really like me a lot? 
tend my sheep. I'll meet you where you are. It's like the man who said, if you can do anything. She said, if? No. He said, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. And there's so many times I say, Lord, I love you, but I don't love you like I ought. Sometimes I just think I like you a lot and want you to be my good buddy. Jesus says, that's not where I want you to be, but let's start where you are. That's what grace is. That's why it says, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord, favor in the eyes of the Lord. And the very word Hebrew, in Hebrew, for grace or favor, was the idea of a superior stooping down to an inferior. One translation of Psalm 1835 says, you stoop down to make me great. That doesn't diminish his deity, but it, it enhances our awareness that we, in our honesty, our, our sin, our failure, say, Lord, I need you to reach down and lift me up. But here's the third major point. I want you to look at verses 18 and 19. When Jesus calls us to this, he says, glorify me. Let's read it. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wish, Simon. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and another will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. Now, he said this signifying by what kind of death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. He's saying, one day when you're older, you may have girded yourself to swim to me today, but one day somebody else is going to take charge of what you wear, what you do, where you go, and your very life, and you're going to be crucified. Jesus did not tell him the best thing or easiest thing would happen if he followed him, but seemingly the hardest. And like Lazarus, Jesus had said his death will glorify God. He didn't say, Peter, if you follow me, uh, you, you love me, I guarantee that you're going to be the leading figure in the first half of the book of Acts. You're going to have a miraculous jailbreak engineered by an angel. You're going to pray and somebody will be raised from the dead. You're going to be so important in the early church that you will be the primary source of one of the gospels, like Mark. You're going to write two inspired letters, and one day when you die, misguided people will call you the first pope and worship where your bones are. Sign here. He's not like a university football scout or recruit or a coach who comes to a high school senior in Scratch Ankle, Alabama, or Lizard Lick, North Carolina, or Booger, Oklahoma, and says, son, I want you to sign at such and you. And, and son, I guarantee if you'll sign up with me, I guarantee you're going to be a starter as a freshman, All-American as a sophomore, get a fabulous summer job, date the prettiest cheerleader, get a new F-150 pickup. I guarantee you're going to be All-American as a junior. Sign first round as a pro. Sign here. Nope. Jesus didn't recruit like that. There are not many lined up for the cross. Not many want to glorify God with suffering, but I can guarantee you, 
You can sign it on the dotted line that if you want to know the power of his resurrection, as Paul said, you also get the package deal of the fellowship of his sufferings. And therefore, he calls us to embrace the cost. That's why Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and do what? Follow me. Glorifying God. I spent some, much of my life in too much self-consciousness instead of Christ-consciousness. Our, our big aim is to glorify Him no matter what. But then lastly, when He calls us to get off the bench and into the game, He says, all right, follow me. John was hanging out listening to Jesus. The disciple whom Jesus loved, who always leaned on his breast, let's look at it in verses 20 to 23. And Peter fell in the same trap that you and I do of comparison with other followers. Peter, turning around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who also had leaned back on his bosom at the supper and said, Lord, who is the one who betrays you? So Peter, seeing him, said to Jesus, Lord, and what about this man? Jesus said to him, if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. It's none of your business, Peter, what I do with John. I've got a plan for him just like I do for you. Take your eyes off of other people in comparison and contrast. It's like Peter was thinking, you know, like, like little children, hey, if, if I've got to be punished, then so does he. How does he get out of it? And we know that John lived to a ripe old age. Peter would be a martyr. How different they were. You know, Peter's the guy that swam to Jesus. John stayed in the boat and waited for the others. He was a man of meditation. Peter was a man of action. Peter was an evangelist to the Jews. John was a pastor and later settled down in Ephesus. And yet, John is the guy pastor search committees say what we want is a real pastor. P Peter's that preacher, you know. So different. And yet Jesus said, literally in the Greek language, you, me, keep on following. Take your eyes off others. Keep them on me. The Lord can use all of us and any of us at any point to impact our world, but only if we're willing to follow Him no matter what, keeping our eyes on Him and loving Him passionately. Our youngest daughter, Allison, and her husband, Scott, have adopted two precious children. The first one is Ruby. Ruby is a precious little African-American child, three years old, that they adopted right after she was born in Baton Rouge. And when I asked Allison why they chose the name Ruby, here's the story. She's named after Ruby Bridges of New Orleans because she was one of four little African-American children chosen to integrate the public schools in 1960 in New Orleans. They were all in different schools. But Ruby seemed to attract an incredible amount of hatred and prejudice from people Norman Rockwell painted a famous picture of her walking to school, and you can only see the legs of 
of the state troopers that protected her because President Eisenhower dispatched them because it was so dangerous. Uh, One woman one day threatened to poison her. Another person held up a little black doll in a casket to intimidate her. They shouted curses and angry, hurtful things at her day after day. Parents had pulled all their children out of the school. All but one teacher refused to be involved in teaching. And one teacher committed to show compassion and love to little Ruby all the way through. And for a whole year, she was the only pupil in her classroom. One day, Ruby stopped in front of the crowd, and it looked like she was talking to them. She hesitated, and the state troopers and the marshals tried to hurry her on and get her to move on, but she wouldn't budge till she was ready. And when she finally got into the classroom, the teacher was appalled. Ruby, why did you do that? And Ruby explained that every day, a few blocks away, she would pray for them And then after school, she would pray for them again. And here's the prayer that she would pray. Now, let me tell you why this is special in our family. Because little Allison, my little youngest daughter, as a public school teacher, would read this entire story to her class every year. And you can see the impact, the powerful impact of her as a discipler of children, of little lambs on the story. Listen to what Ruby prayed. Please, God, try to forgive those people because even if they say these bad things, they don't know what they're doing. So you could forgive them just like you did those folks a long time ago when they said terrible things about you. In other words, she was remembering Jesus' prayer on the cross, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And even as a first grader, this child, because she loved Jesus and followed him all the way, was extending love and forgiveness to these people. Can you? Would you bow your heads in prayer, please? Some of you have not yet received his love when he died for your sins on the cross. And he's calling you today to come and accept what Jesus did for you. How he not only prayed for you, but died in your place. And you can become a true follower of Christ today. Our staff are going to be here to receive you. There's going to be some simple, short music. And in this sacred moment, you will have an opportunity to come forward and speak to the pastor or one of these other good people. And we will pray with you. We'll show you how to become a follower of Christ. Some of you are convicted because you fumble the ball. You feel like you've been cut from the team. But Jesus is calling you back today to not only forgive, but to restore and recommission you. And it could very well be in this discipling time today You might feel led to come and pray with one of the pastors or kneel here at the altar and recommit your life to be not only a follower, a disciple, but a disciple maker who will impact the world. If a first grader can have this impact, so can you. And the Lord may be calling you to be a part of this flock of wonderful sheep here with a wonderful shepherd and be in a loving 
church family, we bid you to come today. So, pastor, as you come, God, I pray that in the name of the Savior who died and rose, oh, Lord, draw us to yourself, to your love. Thank you for forgiving us, loving us unconditionally. Call us, Lord, to yourself. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand. Thank you for spending time with our church family. If you would like to learn more about our ministry, visit us online at pcbc.tv. There you can also contact us and find out how to connect with us through social media channels. And visit pcbc.tv podcast to listen to additional messages from Putnam City Baptist Church.